Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook, and with me today is Matt Simon. Matt is a science writer for Wired Magazine, and he specializes in zoology, particularly of the bizarre variety and the author of The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar. He's just one of a handful of human beings who's witnessed the fabled mating ritual of the axolotl salamander. I'd like to ask you about that. He lives in San Francisco. The book we're going to talk about today is called The Plight of the Living Dead, What Real-Life Zombies Reveal About Our World and Ourselves. Matt, welcome to the program. And thanks for having me. Hey, what, go ahead. since it's mentioned in your, in your bio, what is that... Uh, fabled mating ritual of the salamander. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, may as well get right into it. So the, uh, the axolotl salamander is uh, found in labs actually across the world because scientists are studying it because it has these remarkable regenerative properties. So if it loses a limb, it can actually grow it back in a matter of about a month, uh, which is pretty amazing. We don't do that, obviously. Uh, we scar instead. So scientists are looking to the salamander for ideas into how to perhaps give us this power but um you know they have to have these things mating first to make more salamanders and i was in a lab uh, a while back where they put a male and a female in a tank and the uh, male does this really funny push-up kind of dance in order to get the female's attention it didn't seem to be working this particular time so he came up to the uh, the front of the glass of the tank and I, I swear to you he looked at me as if to ask for advice or help or, or something here what does he do uh, but instead, uh, I had nothing for him, and he ended up vomiting um, and uh, ruining the mood for everybody. And so at that point, <laughs> the scientist said, all right, you know, I think this is probably done, not going to happen, and they removed the mail from the tank. Uh, maybe I'll have luck some other time. But uh, that is the fabled uh, axolotl mating ritual. Mm-hmm. Now, early in this book, uh, we're going to focus on the zombifying uh, parasites, but early in the book, you define parasite and hyperparasite and parasitoid and hyperparasitoid, uh, I'm sure many of us are familiar growing up with various parasites that humans encounter that live inside our system, hookworm, pinworm, trachina worm, and of course the dreaded tapeworm in your gut. Uh, but that's really not the focus here. But let's talk just a minute about the definition. What it, a parasite is something that lives on another organism, basically, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a really basic way of putting it. Yeah, it's, uh, I would probably say that uh, it's an organism that really lives on or in another organism and um, you know sucks out energy from its body that's how these parasites are surviving so you know you mentioned the tapeworm that's a pretty easy one they live in our, our guts they absorb energy they're parasites that way but what I get into in the book are the parasites that not only absorb energy from their hosts but end up manipulating their behavior and it sounds fantastical and impossible and something you'd only find in say the walking dead that a creature can zombify another animal, but it's extremely mm-hmm. common. There's funguses that do it, there's worms, there's wasps across the tree of life. This has developed this manipulative behavior among parasites uh, with uh, just incredible uh, commonalities. It's just it's really interesting to see how not only are they as species uh, manipulating their hosts in different ways, but interesting ways that they develop these independently, but also share traits um, between the manipulative behaviors of the different parasites. Mm-hmm. Let's start with the first zombifier, the jewel wasp, in the book. Uh, 
it takes over the, the cockroach so that its larva can feed on the cockroach until ready to escape. Um, it, it does a couple of interesting things with laser-like precision with its stinger. First, it paralyzes the front leg so the, the roach can't defend itself, and then it penetrates the brain and knows exactly where to put certain chemicals, and that makes for a kind of an interesting start to the story. Yeah, and it's great for those of you who do not like cockroaches uh, because this does not end well for the roach in any way. So as you mentioned, this uh, this is a wasp, and it, it parasitizes roaches, but the wasp is about half the size of a cockroach um, and needs to be able to somehow mind control it to get it to where it wants to go to feed its young. So what happens is a female jewel wasp begins by stinging in between those two front legs, as you'd mentioned. Um, that paralyzes them so it the roach can't defend itself from what's about to happen, which is the jewel wasp mother pulling out her stinger and then driving it through the neck and into the brain and feeling around in the brain because she has these little sensors on her stinger. She feels around for two very specific spots of the brain that govern locomotion, and she injects, injects venom here. This is the mind control serum, essentially. When she pulls out her stinger uh, and backs away, the cockroach kind of just stands there and grooms itself like an idiot, like it didn't just get brain surgery um, against its will in a very violent way. Um, so the wasp goes off, finds a burrow, comes back, and doesn't really drag the cockroach. It isn't particularly forceful, but more guides the roach, which follows the wasp into the burrow. And at any moment, the roach can fly away or, or scramble away because scientists that say this, they, they can pick up one of these roaches that has been stung in the brain and throw it in water, and it will snap out of it and walk away. Um, so there's something in the venom that is keeping the roach from escaping. It just, just decides not to, um, and which is a shame because the roach or the, the wasp leads the roach into the burrow, uh, lays an egg on its stomach and seals up that burrow. The egg hatches into a larva, which then consumes the cockroach alive. Again, this does not end well for the cockroach, but this incredibly complex manipulation evolved on, on the part of the wasp because uh, it is, again, half the size of the roach. It needs to be able to provide a lot of food for its developing young. So the idea is that by brainwashing, essentially, the cockroach it can guide it as a sort of vehicle around the ecosystem and put it where it wants as opposed to having to drag it. It's a really fascinating manipulation that really dials up the, the complexity of the behavior. Mm -hmm. and, and the chemicals are, are, that are involved are, are not that uncommon. I mean, dopamine is one of the things that causes the, the cockroach to groom, and there's something called GABA, which I have no idea what that stands for, but um, it's been weaponized here. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting thing, is that these chemicals we share with uh, wasps and cockroaches and a lot of other critters that are common across the animal kingdom. So dopamine you had mentioned. In roaches, the interesting bit there is that while in humans it's, it's more of a social kind of chemical that makes us want to, to socialize and want food and things like that, it's about desire. In a roach, it's instead about grooming behavior um, to a large degree. So as I mentioned, when the wasp backs away, the cockroach just begins grooming itself. That's probably a function of the massive amount of dopamine that was in the venom that the wasp injected into the roach's brain. So it's important to keep in mind here that these parasites aren't, you know, messing with the soul, this, this kind of nebulous notion of uh, uh, the soul of a, a critter. Um, this is pure biology. This is manipulating things like dopamine and serotonin, uh, chemicals
chemicals like that to really precisely guide the behavior of these poor hosts, um, for which things never really end up very nicely. Mm-hmm. And, and the the posture of the cockroach is another thing you note in this particular uh, zombification. Uh, it, it doesn't have this, the same posture, but it, it does keep breathing so that uh, it can keep the vital organs alive so that the, the flesh remains fresh for the, the growing larva, yes? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So the, um, the posture is uh, suspiciously similar to the sleep state of a cockroach, and the hypothesis is that the venom is putting the roach into this kind of a sleep. It's almost a slumber. It is conscious, and it's, again, able to walk around because the wasp can guide it into the burrow. But it is in some sort of state of mind where it is perfectly capable of waking up, snapping out of it, and walking away, yet never really chooses to. And it is probably similar to a sleep state, this really nightmarish kind of almost a, a sleep paralysis that you're, you're able to still move around. And, and they're just beginning to understand what chemicals beyond dopamine are involved here to create this behavior that ends very badly for the roach, but is a very clever manipulation on part of the wasp. Mm-hmm. And that you mentioned biology, and that takes us into the, the next part of the chapter when you talk about poor old Alfred Russell Wallace, who was in bed with malaria, but was was a significant contributor to what became Darwin's uh, theory of natural selection and uh, the survival of the fittest and the origin of the species. Wallace really got shortchanged here. Yeah, you probably haven't heard of him before, but he was a real titan in biology, and he was working around the same time as Darwin. And uh, as you mentioned, he was laid up uh, in the Malay archipelago with a pretty nasty case of malaria. And the idea of natural selection actually came to him in this sort of fever dream. And it just so happened that Darwin had thought of it about 20 years earlier, but was still amassing evidence for it because he knew what a revolutionary idea it was. And he wanted to have a lot of data to back it up. Um, So unfortunately for Wallace, what he did was he wrote down the idea and sent it to Darwin. And and Darwin, of course, had a bit of a freak out because he was about to get scooped. Um, But the the friends of Darwin presented the findings of of both men, this this really revolutionary idea to uh, uh, the the scientific society in, in London. And the idea was cemented, of course, in biology. We don't so much hear about Wallace, but of course we hear about Darwin. But the idea is the same, and it really plays into these manipulative parasites, that uh, there are pressures out there to develop these kinds of manipulative behaviors as fantastic as they may seem. A lot of wasps will go just sting a critter and, and carry it away for food uh, uh, for the young, but here with the jewel wasp, the behavior is more precise because it's probably to give the young more food. It, it tackles such a big prey, again, twice the size, to be able to feed the larva in that den in a really, again, horrible way that can only feel terrible for the roach that is alive while this is all happening. But it didn't just pop up, you know, however many thousands or millions of years ago that, oh, this extremely precise manipulation of the wasp does bit by bit by bit, but it probably accumulated time after time, very small mutations added up to create what is essentially a synergy, you know, Uh, All of these little behaviors add up to something that is extremely precise and extremely complicated, um, but it all happened automatically by way of natural selection. That is, 
the critters that were best fitted to their environment to pass down their genes um, ended up winning out and passing down these behaviors generation after generation. So the ideas uh, of Darwin and Wallace, I don't think they could have seen this coming, that we would be looking at a wasp stinging cockroaches in the brain and injecting venom in specific spots in that brain. Uh, who would have thought back then in the 1800s when they were writing that, that this would what biology would come to? But I think it's a really beautiful illustration of the very simple uh, processes of natural selection. Mm-hmm. And, and you discuss a little bit about that, about how uh, in nature animals pump out a whole whole lot more uh, young than actually survive, and the ones that survive actually had the best um, adaptation to what was going on in nature. Uh, the jewel wasp is an example of, of how that came to be for its larvae, but uh, there are so many others uh, that uh, uh, this happens for. Uh, let's talk about... Uh, the hungry caterpillar. Um, <laughs> there's a, uh, a a caterpillar that uh, is overtaken by a nematode, as I recall. Yeah, this um, well, there, this one was specifically a wasp, the hungry caterpillar, oh, okay. that kind of operates in a little bit the same way that the jewel wasp does. Uh, this one is rather, I don't know, is it more horrific? It's its horrific in a different way than with the cockroach. So this, this wasp injects the about-to-be-very-hungry caterpillar with 80 eggs, um, and these all hatch inside the caterpillar and begin feeding on juices, um, which, of course, makes the caterpillar extra hungry. Um, so it actually just kind of hangs out as a caterpillar without, you know, it's the kind of the same principle behind the cockroach of getting stung in the brain, as if nothing has happened, and it's wandering around as these things are growing. And at uh, all at one time, the larvae inside, again, 80 of them, inside the caterpillar decided they're going to come out. And the, um, the scientific term here is egress. It's not eruption. <laughs> it is egress, which sounds much more pleasant than erupting out of a, a caterpillar, but they do so all at the same time, and they um, they come out and they begin, uh, what they do is they, they chew through the skin of the caterpillar, and cleverly, as they're exiting, they're shedding their skin, so that skin actually plugs up the wound that they leave behind, and there's, there's so many of them that this would seem like, oh, extreme trauma for the caterpillar, but they do such a good job of plugging up their wounds, the caterpillar is going to survive just fine as these things all begin spinning their cocoons outside of the caterpillar. Not only does the caterpillar not freak out about this, it actually begins protecting the larvae uh, now spinning into cocoons that have erupted out of its body. So if any other parasites or predators come along, it'll actually bat away these poor little things that we're thinking they're getting free meals. But in fact, the larvae have turned the caterpillar into a bodyguard, which is pretty stunning when you think about, first of all, not intelligent behavior for the caterpillar, very much against its own interest. But the larvae had to set this in motion before they came out of the caterpillar, right? Because once they're outside of it, they can't control its behavior. So they've released some sort of chemical or the mother injected some sort of chemical in the, in the venom that has convinced the caterpillar to very aggressively defend the parasites that have very rudely erupted from its body. Excuse me egressed from its body um, is the proper way to say it, but uh, really 
just fascinating manipulation on the part of the wasp. A little bit different from the cockroach, but you know, uh, kind of the same principle when you think about it. It's about being better able to pass down your genes to the next generation. Uh, it just so happens in this case to be a matter of turning the host into a bodyguard as into as opposed to into just a, a piece of meat for the larva to eat. But very subtle differences in the manipulations here as it has evolved separately across so many different species, not just among wasps, but you know, worms and, and fungi and all kinds of other organisms as well. You know, the, the, the bodyguard thing applies to a, another one you discuss about the ladybug who actually becomes a protector of, of the babies uh, at a certain point in their development too. That poor ladybug. Yeah, this one isn't very good for PR, right? We all have uh, ladybugs. It might give wasps a bad name to know that uh, another one of these species will sting a ladybug and inject an egg, which grows to, uh, as a larva into an enormous size. It takes up a good amount of the ladybug's body um, and then, again, egresses in a pretty terrible way because it's so big through the skin of the ladybug, um, which ends up being able to survive that. And not only that, but as the larva of the wasp is spinning its cocoon and beginning to develop into an adult, the cat or excuse me, the ladybug will stand over the top of that little larva developing into a cocoon and defend it. It'll kick away ants uh, with actually pretty good precision. And it turns out that almost every larva, if you leave it alone without a, a ladybug, leave it on a, a leaf or something, almost everyone will perish, will get eaten by a predator of some sort. But it's something like 75% of the larva uh, protected by the ladybugs will survive. So it's a great strategy on the part of the mother wasp to provide the young with a, a bodyguard. Ladybugs are, of course, um, pretty non-toxic unless you eat them um, and not exactly that aggressive until they are turned into these very aggressive bodyguards that will uh, go far out of their way to protect the parasite that rudely assaulted their body. So it's, you can see these similarities uh, in a lot of ways between different species of manipulators, um, but it has evolved separately and they've all kind of converged on these really good strategies to keep the young alive. And the, the 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 one that seemed most like a zombie because brain and body were taken over was the fungus that takes over the ant. Uh, you mercifully shortened the name to Ophio. Uh, but uh, let's talk about how that happens because that that really sounds more like a zombie than a lot of them do. <laughs> it's pretty it's, – it's incredible. It's, it's almost unbelievable. And this one uh, is a fungus, as you mentioned called Ophiocordyceps, uh, it lands on the skin of an ant and works its way through it by releasing enzymes and eventually starts growing through muscles and tissues and developing as sort of a film around the brain. And a couple weeks after initial infection, it has grown in the ant to make up about half of its body weight, which begs an interesting question of, you know, when does an ant stop being an ant? and stop being, start being more of a fungus uh, in an ant's body as a vehicle. So, you know, at a, a couple weeks after the infection, the fungus begins manipulating the ant to walk outside of the colony into a very specific spot in the rainforest. And this is always about 10 inches off the ground, and it orders the ant to bite onto a leaf hanging upside down. Um, and once it has anchored the ant there in a nice position, it dispatches it and grows as a stalk out of the back of its head. 
and rain spores onto the colony below. It, the fungus has just so happened to have positioned the ant above the colony's trails, which presents plenty of other individuals to infect. And that 10 inches off the ground is likely a manipulation because 10 inches is where the humidity is optimal for the growth of the fungus, which is really incredible, especially considering that the fungus is an organism without a brain of its own. So how is it doing this? And the thought is that, yes, it's releasing some sort of chemicals uh, as it is growing as a sheath around the brain, but also as it's growing through muscles, it's prying apart the fibers. And this is a very early hypothesis, and a lot of work has to be done here. But the idea is that as the fungus is growing through the muscles, it's sort of replacing the central nervous system of the ant, because if it's prying apart those fibers, it's severing the neurons and those connections and essentially paralyzing them. The idea might be then it is the fungus is releasing neurotransmitters that mimic those of the ant to literally pull on individual muscles, almost like a puppet master, to tug on them and get the ant to walk in a specific way out of the colony and again in a very specific spot in the rainforest so the the work here is is getting more and more in depth there's there's good scientists working on this particular organism to figure out how the fungus again without a brain of its own is able to pilot an ant around the rainforest to its own ends and you know a lot of these colonies this ends up being just a chronic infection that you deal with. It doesn't wipe out the colony, but it's just one of those things that as an ant, you have to worry about. And and the colony acts like a superorganism. I mean, they, if everybody's functioning normally and they don't have a, a parasite inside them, uh, then there's no problem. But as they start to stumble and behave in ways different than most of the colony ants, they often get dragged out and thrown out of the colony at that point, yes? which is probably why this developed uh, as, a, as a strategy for the fungus. Yes, yeah, so the, the ants have this thing called social immunity, and they're on the lookout for individuals that are acting weird because that's an indication that there's probably a parasite in their body doing strange things to them, and you don't want that parasite to spread. So yeah, you'll find uh, soldiers will be on the lookout for ants and will find infected ones and drag them out of the colony and unceremoniously dump them in a graveyard. So this presents an interesting challenge for the fungus. Uh, it has to be able to manipulate the behavior of the ant and, again, make up something like half of its body weight, yet, first of all, not make it act strange, and second of all, not make it smell different, because that's how ants largely communicate, is by pheromones. So how is the fungus doing this? It's, it's using it as a vehicle, yet it is not really getting found out. But that's probably why this developed as such a complex manipulation. If, if the fungus infected an ant and just killed it in the colony, of course the, the friends of the ant will find it and drag it into a graveyard and isolate the parasite that way. You get rid of the infection. But by being able to pilot the ant around in a more subtle, nuanced way and, and put it in a spot that is, again, strategically placed above the colony's trails, the, over the millennia, and this is probably at least 50 million years old, they found fossilized leaves with these characteristic bite marks in those of the, the zombie ants. It's at least that old, probably older, but over these many, 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 many generations, these small manipulations, these mutations in the fungus allowed it to develop this, what seems like an impossible manipulation to us. But it's, in fact, a really clever way for the fungus to be able to pass its genes to the next generation at, of course, the expense of the ants. Mm -hmm. 
Okay. Let's let's do a little bit with the worms who take over the uh, mollusks because that's uh, that's kind of interesting because sometimes they go from one host to another depending on how they manipulate their hosts. Yeah, worms are an interesting case because you've probably heard before that a lot of worms have to get into different kinds of animals to complete their life cycle. So in this case, the uh, the worms are infecting these critters called gammarids. They live in fresh water. They look kind of like shrimp. Um, but uh, the worms get in there and not only have to invade the gammarid, but also get into either a bird or a fish. And interestingly, depending on the species of worm, it will subtly manipulate the behavior of the gammarid. And it, it does this by, if it needs to get into a bird, it will order the gammarid to spend more time at, at the surface. Uh, a bird ideally sees that gammarid, eats it, uh, which ends up poorly for the gammarid, of course, but within the bird is the only place that the worm can now reproduce. It's a, it's a clever manipulation. The problem is that if that same worm gets into the belly of a fish, it will die. It will just dissolve and get digested. So um, when you, but on the other hand, when you have the species that need to get into a fish as opposed to a bird, the manipulation is a bit different. They will manipulate the gammarid to spend more time down at the bottom of a river or a pond where it's more likely to come across fish and less likely to get into a bird. So a fascinating nuance here between the different species, depending on whether they want to get into a bird or a fish from the gammarid, uh, very subtly manipulating the behavior to spend more time in particular parts of the pond or stream, which is interesting because you then create these different populations of zombies and non-zombies, uh, or zombies that are after birds and zombies that are after fish, uh, you know, occupying these different parts of the ecosystem. And it has fascinating implications for not only how worms and other manipulative parasites uh, manipulate the hosts themselves, but how they might be manipulating whole ecosystems to change the dynamics between predator and prey. Mm -hmm. And uh, we only have about three minutes left, and I do want to uh, make the case that you make in the book very strongly about evolution and um, not attributing that to some uh, not attributing biology to some uh, higher power, but rather just to the actions of, of the natural selection process. Yeah, I think it's, what really drives this home for me is a manipulative parasite that affects humans like rabies. Um, so you'll see that you know, rabies was evolved in other mammals, doesn't really exploit us that much, um, but because we are mammals with mammalian brains, we share biology with the other mammals that the virus typically infects. And because of that, we get the behavioral manipulations as well. It's a really horrible disease. You can find videos of people suffering from rabies online. And one of the interesting manipulations is that the virus makes the host um, uh, despise water, which is an interesting manipulation because the Parasite is presenting itself as, um, uh, uh, you know, the foaming at the mouth, like the, the, the typical characteristic of a rabies-infected organism. Um, and not wanting to drink water means that the host keeps that virus in its mouth. It's a very interesting manipulation. Um, but, it, you know, you get to thinking, well, if the rabies virus can do this to our brains, uh, does that make us at all different? Um, and what does that mean about the behavior of animals, um, not to mention humans how much are we really in control of our faculties how much of it is just pure biology that we're on autopilot and i would argue that we are 100 percent 
on autopilot because that is the efficient way to structure a brain. We like to think that we have this great big consciousness and this free will, but our brains are meat, you know, just like every other organism that is manipulated in more complex ways, the roach or the ant. Um, but we like to think of ourselves as different, and I would argue that we are not. We are meat that is neurons and chemicals all swishing around up there, and, and because we are meat, that means that parasites can exploit us just as they do what we would term lower animals like cockroaches and ants. So um, the book is a thorough explanation of this, and I, I go with the, one of your uh, persons who sing your praise saying, you'll be thinking about this book long after you're done reading it, because some of those images really stick with me about what happens to the zombies as you describe them very vividly and uh, interesting read. Uh, that's all the time we have. Unfortunately, we've been talking with Matt Simon. The book is Plight of the Living Dead. It's a Penguin Press book readily available, and it's an interesting read. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I thank you for listening, and I remind you, if you don't hear our regularly scheduled program on the radio, you can catch us at YouTube at Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening. Make it a great day.